<clears throat> My name is uh, Carl Carr. I am one of the elders here at Tomball Bible Church. Our senior pastor, Skeet Alderson, is vacationing in uh, Alabama uh, this morning with his family, and so I'll be bringing the teaching this morning. If you're visiting with us, it is actually our practice for uh, other elders and members of our leadership team to bring about one-third of the uh, teachings on Sunday mornings while the pastor brings the other two-thirds or so, and we feel that in this way uh, you get to hear from the heart of the entire uh, leadership team uh, as well. So this morning we are uh, going to be embarking on our fifth and last uh, sermon in this series uh, that we've called The Lord's Prayer and Trusting uh, God. And Specifically today, we're going to wrap up this series by examining this idea of trust, trusting God as our uh, protector. And so, return with me now this morning, if you have your Bibles, to Matthew chapter 6, uh, beginning in uh, verse 9. Uh, while you turn to that passage, um, my family experienced a, an experience that it's uh, never had the privilege of experiencing uh, before. We took my 18-year-old daughter to college in Missouri at Missouri State. Uh, have any of you here gotten to experience that? Yeah, so there's, there's quite a few of you here. And for those of you with small children, I will say to you that it will be here much faster than you think. And for those of you who are children... This is really tough on us. <laughs> so, so keep that in mind. Um, so we took Megan to Missouri State, and I was very excited for her, and everything went, went really well, and I was actually quite encouraged and relieved about a whole lot of things. And, and then we got in the car and started to drive away uh, toward Texas. Um, even now, I'm trying to keep it together, folks. So, But a, as we drove away... Um, it was fairly quiet for the first 30 minutes to an hour in the, in the vehicle. Because, you see, many of you know, Megan was adopted. And so almost a little more than 18 years ago, we, we, we got Megan when she was 20 hours old. And when she was handed to me for the first time and I held her, I distinctly remember making this promise to God that I will die before I allow harm to come to her and I will protect her and provide for her because of this amazing responsibility that God had, had placed uh, in our hand. And then in the, with, the, with the turn of a key in the truck, I had to let go of that responsibility. And it just hits you all of a sudden. So, you know, I was kind of tearful and, and it was hard to drive back, but it, it wasn't because I was going to miss her, which I will, it wasn't because I was going to miss her. It's because uh, I actually had to let go for the first time completely and trust God with her. And uh, if you know me, you know how precious uh, that my kids are to me. And so it was a really challenging moment for me there as I drove away that her protection, uh, her provision... Her teaching, everything that's gone to go on in her life for the next four years or so, it's not going to come primarily from me and my wife for the for the first time. 
And so there's this great transition. And as I drove away and I was thinking more and more about it, 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 it occurred to me, or maybe the Holy Spirit impressed upon me, that while I had this incredible privilege for a little while to be her dad, it was really God who was her father all along. And I just had to trust that that relationship was going to continue. And so on that note, what I would like to begin this morning, a question for you to consider, and that we'll explore through this sermon, the question is, is exactly how much of your life are you willing to trust God with? I'll ask that question again. How much of your life are you willing to trust God with? Because a year ago, I would have told you I trust God completely with my daughter. And then I had to drive away. <laughs> and the question got a little harder at that point. So at any rate, <clears throat> hopefully you're there in uh, Matthew chapter 6, uh, verse 19 uh, with me. So let's, let's read what has uh, become known as the Lord's Prayer. It says, Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So I want to begin this morning by sharing three observations that I made uh, about the Lord's Prayer while I studied uh, in preparation for this teaching this morning. So three observations. Um, Observation one. This prayer, this model prayer that Jesus gives us, it it is not a prescribed method of prayer that guarantees that you'll get what you want. In in fact, in in the preceding verses, Matthew 7 through 9, Jesus, he specifically warns against approaching prayer in this manner. Matter of fact, look at verses 7 through 9 of Matthew chapter 6. So beginning there in verse 7, right before the Lord's Prayer, it says, And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then after these verses, Jesus immediately follows those verses by offering up an example of an appropriate prayer, alternative, if you will, to bring before the Father. So in the context of this passage, the Lord's Prayer is actually offered up as an alternative uh, alternative or an appropriate alternative to wrong prayer. So that's observation number one, that this prayer is not a prescribed method of prayer to guarantee to get what you want. Observation two, so I thought about this. You know, the Lord's Prayer, it's not a magical mantra that was designed to be recited over and over again as some sort of good luck charm. If you examine this passage, Jesus never intended for us to say this prayer by rote memory on some kind of spiritual autopilot. In fact, Jesus does not say, pray this, in verse 9. He says, pray like this, right? So that's observation uh, number 2. Observation number three. You know, this, this model prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer, it, it's not really a prayer that Jesus would pray. And so instead of calling it the Lord's Prayer, I think a better title might be the Example Prayer for Disciples. And if you look at Matthew chapter 6, 
it's actually clear that this example or this model of prayer was given to a specific audience, not everyone. I'd go even a little farther and suggest that this prayer was really intended as a prayer for the disciple who is engaged and committed to the mission that was given to us by Jesus in the first place. Well, what is this mission given to us by Jesus? Most of you should know this by now if you've been around TBC for a few months. But Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. We've read it many times. What we call the Great Commission. It says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So our mission boiled down, if we're to be followers of Christ, our mission is simply that, making disciples. Therefore, when Jesus offers this example prayer to his followers, he naturally gives them this model prayer that exemplifies the mindset of a disciple who's committed to following the Great Commission. And as a result, if you look carefully at what Jesus says, it really makes no sense for any other group to pray in this way. And it certainly makes no sense for any other group to recite to be reciting this prayer by memory like it's some kind of good luck charm. So let's take a look, closer look at the Lord's Prayer. With this idea of the Lord's Prayer as, as a model prayer that will exemplify the mindset of a disciple, uh, let's turn to those verses again as a quick review. Look at verse 9, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9 very short statement. It says, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Uh, about four weeks ago, uh, Skeet taught that the statement communicates that, Lord, I, I honor you as my loving and sacrificial Father. And, and since I know you as my Father, I, I know that you're never going to ask anything of me that you haven't already done on my behalf. So that's verse 9. Verse 10 says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 10 acknowledges that God is my king and I'm his servant. But isn't it true, more often than not, that we approach prayer in the exact reverse roles? In other words, we, we approach prayer asking God to serve us so that we can continue to be the king of our lives. And so we, we have it flipped, and verse 10 reminds us that we are his followers, his representatives and image bearers of the, of the king uh, that we serve. Look at verses um, 11 through 13 there in Matthew. Verses 11 through 13 says, Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we, as, all, as we have also forgiven our debtors. And, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. In these three verses, you see clearly the mindset of a disciple that declares every day that as my loving Father and my rightful King, you are my faithful provider and you're my Redeemer and you're my protector while I carry out what you have commissioned me to do. Like any servant, my tasks in your service are provisioned and protected by the king, and I'm therefore completely dependent upon you, Lord. 
It says, I trust God in what he's doing and for what I need. And so if you look even more closely at these verses 11 through 13 there in Matthew chapter 6, we see that within this model prayer that exemplifies this mindset of a disciple, there are three distinct requests or petitions of God there. Now, although these requests, for all, are, for all of these requests, they are really a form of, of provision and protection, these three requests are actually very unique and different requests. And so I want to look at the uh, three requests, and let's, let's explore those a little bit as well. Look at verse 11 by itself, Matthew six eleven. It says, Give us this day our daily bread. So, verse 11, right off you see, is actually a request for physical provision. Now, maybe in our current state of affluence here in the United States, we don't actually pray that we'll have food every day, right? But if we are truly following after Christ and we're making disciples, then we would want to pray for some physical, uh, physical provision, right? We can pray for stamina. We can pray for uh, health. Um, we can even pray for financial means to continue uh, on the mission. Um, I'm in my six-ish year of uh, being an elder here at TBC. And I'll be quite frank with you. Sometimes it can be incredibly exhausting. It can be time-consuming. It can be challenging. And it can be incredibly, incredibly frustrating. And one of the things that if you do this for very long, it can become very wearisome. And and so one of the things that I know I and other elders have to pray on a very, on a very regular basis is, is, Lord, don't let me grow weary in serving your people. And that's a type of physical provision that, uh, that you can pray for. So physical provision. Look at verse 12, Matthew 6, 12 says very simply, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. So verse 12, unlike a physical request, it's a request for a relational provision and protection. So it's a relational request. If you endeavor to be a disciple, the disciple quickly learns that if we are to make disciples, we need God, we need God's power to forgive others just like he forgives us. If we can't forgive, then our ministry and our service is quickly just suffocated by this unforgiving spirit. And when you quench the Holy Spirit, our our ministry dies. Why is forgiveness so very essential? Well, because in ministry, this may surprise you, people will disappoint the heck out of you. You may pour your heart and soul into someone and, and... Everything is starting good, and, and, and it's this incredible relationship that's happening within discipleship, and you just pour your heart and soul and time into them. And in return, they disappoint you. They, they hurt your feelings. They get lazy. They get prideful. They get distracted, and on and on and on. And, and when you want to lash out, what you have to completely remember each time is that a disciple must first understand that grace received from the Father has to be turned into grace given to others. You realize, you must realize that we all, on a frequent basis, will disappoint one another. 
And if every time that someone hurts your feelings, you pull back from the mission, you will never be an effective disciple maker. As an elder, if I am honest, I see, I have seen in the last few years a lack of forgiveness even in ministry leaders that have wrecked their ministries. But really, what's more important? Is it, is it you putting someone in their place or is the ministry of Christ more important? Is it more important for you to be right or is it more important for you to share Christ? And so if we endeavor to follow Christ and to be about making disciples, then we must constantly be before the Lord in prayer, praying for relational provision wherein we can show grace to others because it doesn't come naturally. So in this Lord's Prayer, we pray for physical provision. We pray for relational uh, provision. Look at verse 13. Verse 13 of Matthew chapter 6, he says, And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So in addition to asking God for physical and relational provision and protection, verse 13 acts specifically for spiritual protection. In this verse, the disciple says that, As I serve you, Lord, protect me spiritually. And as long as you don't do a lot of theological gymnastics with some really difficult wording there in verse 13. What verse 13 really says is, protect me from Satan's attack, and even more so, protect me from myself. As we begin to disciple one another, what you will see, that when we begin to advance God's kingdom, Satan doesn't like that. And Satan will respond... And you can expect counterattacks from Satan when you invade his territory, right? And so when you invade his territory, expect attacks. And the scripture says, from within the church and from without the church. So expect those. Here at Tumble Bible Church, by God's power, as we transform our church from mostly spectators to a unified group of people who are bent on obeying Christ by making disciples... Do you realize that that what we do here over the next few years could send out ripples across eternity? And these ripples that we send out across eternity can shake the very foundations of Satan's domain. You in that? You want to be part of that? When this happens, the Bible guarantees us that Satan will fight back, both from within and without. And so if you want to follow Christ, we must go before God every day praying for spiritual protection because Scripture promises that our fight is not against flesh and blood. It is a spiritual battle. So we examined this morning how in the Lord's Prayer, this model prayer of the disciple, Christ actually urges us into a certain mindset. Well, what is this mindset? Well, it's the mindset that As a disciple, we can trust God and we can rely upon God in the battle. That's a mindset that Jesus presents there in the Lord's Prayer. It's a mindset that says, don't look at your circumstances, just keep looking to God. As an example of this kind of mindset that we're talking about here, go ahead and and turn with me to uh, Acts chapter 16. And it'll be on the screen as well. But Acts chapter 16, and we're going to go down to... um, 
verse 19. We're going to do 19 through 25 in Acts chapter 16. As you turn to Acts, let me just kind of set the context uh, for this passage before we read it. Paul here in this passage in Acts is on his second missionary journey with a fellow Roman citizen named Silas. And Luke and Timothy are there as well. And they are in a place called Philippi, which is really just a town that exists around a Roman military uh, garrison. And since there is no synagogue there in Philippi, they've taken to, at first, gathering at the river and then uh, meeting at the home of a lady merchant who lives there in Philippi. And so, as Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke, as they walk from place to place in Philippi, Acts records that this demon-possessed slave girl begins to follow them about harassing them and probably sarcastically identifying them correctly as servants of the God Most High. And so she follows around them chanting this. Well, at some point, uh, I don't know what the tipping point is, but uh, Paul and Silas, they turn to her and they cast out this demon from this slave girl. Well, that's a problem for this slave girl's owner, see, because they've been making money off this girl's misfortune by having the demon tell people their fortunes. Sweet bunch of guys, right? Well, as you can imagine, after Paul casts out the demon from this poor little slave girl, the slave owners, they're furious, right? Their money wagon has just left. And we pick up what happens there in verse 19. So read with me Acts chapter 16, verse 19. It says, But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them, Paul and Silas, and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. And and having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. Look at verse 25. It says, About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. So, get this. Paul and Silas had been wrongly accused. They've been illegally arrested because they're Roman citizens. They've been beaten severely and put in prison and then chained in these stocks in an inner cell so that there are no windows. So we're in this dark prison. They've beaten, wounded, feet in the stocks. And it's about midnight, sitting there in the dark. Notice what they're doing in verse 25. It says they're singing praises to God. These guys are nuts, right? Now, that, my friends, is the mindset of a disciple. You see, the mindset of Paul and Silas there says, regardless of my circumstances, God is with me and will protect me and provide for me while I serve Him. Paul and Silas continued to live trusting God, regardless of how things were going at the moment. And more amazing than this instance here in Philippi that we just described These events were apparently not that unusual for Paul. Turn with me now to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28. Beginning in verse 24, Paul says, Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, lest one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. That's a heck of a resume, right? Do you want Paul's job? They didn't put that in the brochure, probably. Now turn with me just to one more passage about Paul. Turn to Philippians chapter 4. Go down to verse 11. So Philippians is a letter to these very people that he was in Philippi with. So it's a letter, it's an epistle to the church there in Philippi that met in Lydia's home. It's the very place where Paul and Silas were beaten in prison. He says this. He says, Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And then he says this verse that we all know and frequently misapply. It says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So, so there it is. And the Philippians knew that these were not hollow words, right? Because they'd seen it. Paul had learned the secret. Paul had adopted the mindset of the disciple that was taught to him by Christ the Lord. And from that point, Paul's mindset was that his, his self-worth and his contentment would never be determined by other people or by his current earthly circumstances ever again. Unlike me with Megan, Paul trusted God with everything, even his life. Okay, turn with me to one last passage for this morning. In Psalms chapter 23, 23rd Psalm, famous passage. While you're turning to Psalms, most experts feel that this psalm here, this passage, was written by David in a place called Mahanaim or Mahanim. And it's a place on the other side of the Jordan River. And most of the experts say that David was there at this very place because he was fleeing from his own son, Absalom. And Absalom was attempting a coup. He was attempting to kill David and take over David's throne, his own son. And it seems to be David's uh, closest son. And David wrote this psalm while awaiting the news of the battle between David's army and Absalom's forces. And understand, David knew that depending on the outcome of this battle, either David would lose his throne and probably his life, or his son, the son that he loved, would be killed. And so while David waited for bad news or badder news, he wrote Psalms 23. 
And Psalm 23 says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He, he leads me besides still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for His name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, and you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Do you see how David and Paul had the very same mindset that Jesus exemplifies in this model prayer of a disciple there in Matthew chapter 6? And they both, Paul and David, both of them trusted God with everything in their life and actually with their very lives as well. So earlier in this teaching, I had asked this question, and the question was exactly how much of your life are you willing to trust God with? How much of your life are you willing to trust God with? Your job? You're going to trust Him with that. You're going to trust Him with your income. You're going to trust Him with your retirement. You're going to trust Him with your children. You're going to trust Him with your health. How much of your life are you willing to trust God with? And it's an important question, I think, because the answer to this question ultimately will determine what kind of disciple you become. In a little over 25 years ago, about 25 years ago, I was in uh, Army Advanced Camp for Infantry Officers at Fort Bragg there in North Carolina. In this Officer Advanced Camp, what they would do is they take all these brand new lieutenants, and they would put us into platoons of about 40 or so guys, and we would stay with these 40 guys throughout our training of the officer advance camp. So, uh, as was our habit, they would do multiple kinds of training uh, for things that infantry officers would encounter as the leaders of their platoon. And so we would rotate leadership positions uh, uh, throughout that time. Um, Lucky me, um, I was made the leader for the day when we were doing one particular training that I will never forget, and it was called responding to an ambush from an elevated position. And so what that means is is they were going to teach us how to respond when we're in a low area and someone ambushes us from a high area. So we'd seeded the high ground, so to speak. Okay, So the sergeant major brings us to our embarking place, and he has a white board uh, or a white piece of paper, actually, that would flip over. And he would go through exactly what was going to happen. It was pretty simple. We were going to take off and bounding overwatch, which was kind of this two Vs that we form, and we kind of leapfrog on each other as we go through this area. And we're out in a V that spreads out, so it makes us less of a target, right? Unless you're the guy in the front of the V, I guess. But anyway, so... <clears throat> um, and so he says, you're going to do this. And you're going to be ambushed from a high position, okay? And so we take off, and we're headed across the valley. And sure enough, about midway through the valley, these guys who were completely camouflaged and obscured, where we did not see them whatsoever, let loose with two different uh, weapons. One was a 50 caliber machine gun, and another one was an M60. Now, if you've watched M60s, I don't know, like Rambo carries one, and 
on television, it's not near as loud as it is in real life. And so when an M- M60 and a, and a 50 caliber mounted machine gun lets loose really near you and above you, it's incredibly loud and incredibly violent. We had on no earplugs or anything like that. And so there's this piercing sound and it just, and the shock waves just hit you in the chest when that thing lets go like that. <clears throat> now, so this is the ambush scenario that was guaranteed by the sergeant major was going to happen. And the sergeant major also told us exactly what to do when this happens. If you were ambushed from an elevated position, your only chance of your platoon surviving is what? Any military guys know? You charge the gun. (laughs) You don't duck for cover because you're a sitting duck. You charge the gun. You go right at the source of the ambush. It's the only way, with us coming from different angles, they can't cover us all. That's the only way any of you will survive. Okay? So we're doing what we're supposed to do. The machine guns hit. Boom! This big violence sound hits. Everyone's ducking and running for covers like a bunch of scared sheep. Okay? Sergeant Major stops the exercise runs out into the middle of us, and a monk telling us that he's going to eat parts of our mothers if we do this again kind of thing. He says, no, 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 no. You're all dead because you didn't do what I told you to do. Start over. So we got to walk another mile and a half back, start over. So we form up, and again, now I'm the leader for the day, so who's taking the brunt of our mistake? So we start off in bounding overwatch once again. Well, unbeknownst to us, while we were moving back to start over, apparently this happens with most groups, as we're moving back to start over, well, guess what the guys with the machine guns did? They moved to a different spot, okay? So we're taking off, expecting to be ambushed in this one place, and we're really ready for it. And while we're walking and ready and trying to see where they were up there, we're actually passing by them, and they're behind us now. Same thing. Boom! Here comes the M50. Here comes the MC. They're just... All this noise is hitting. And what do we do? We run and hide again. I've never seen a sergeant major's face more red than that day. And I could see it because it's about half an inch from my face. Okay. <laughs> and I can't even begin to describe what he said because he could take cursing to this art form. But... He sent us back again. And the long and short of the story is that he sends us out again, and we are bound and determined. I, for one, even if I'm by myself, am not going to hide this time. I don't care what happens. And and believe it or not, on our fifth try, (laughs) these bunch of really green lieutenants, when the machine gun hit, we all took off in that direction, and we actually took the gun. Now, there were a few who still messed it up, but for the most part, we all went for the gun and we learned this very painful exercise that as a bunch of green lieutenants, our natural reaction when we were attacked was to run and hide, to duck, to do everything but what we've been instructed very clearly what to do. We didn't by nature do what probably a bunch of SEALs are... are, uh, our special forces units would do who've experienced this and trained a lot. We did what was a knee-jerk reaction when something really loud hits Ryu to duck, right? That's what we did. 
Why am I telling you this story this morning? Well, much like in this exercise, when we endeavor to obey Christ and to make disciples and to be disciples and to serve God, the Bible promises that we will encounter attacks. And it's one thing to sit and talk about that and say, no matter what happens, I'm going to do this and I'm going to trust the Lord. And then you head out like a bunch of green lieutenants like we did. And sometimes the attacks are loud and they shake your confidence and they make you want to run and duck and take cover. They make you want to, you know, pursue some kind of compromise. And sometimes these attacks can even be incredibly painful. And responding to these attacks with faith and trusting God is not easy. Been there, done that, screwed it up. Many times. And it's not easy. Because by yourself, responding in faith and having the mindset of a disciple and trusting God with everything in your life, like Paul, it's really impossible without God. And that's why Jesus encouraged his disciples to pray to our Father and King for his supernatural provision and for our physical and our relational needs and especially for his spiritual strength and protection as we advance against Satan's kingdom. And and that is at the heart of how Jesus showed us how to pray. He showed us how to pray, hopefully that we would be in a mindset so that we would respond to the attacks of Satan with the mindset of a real disciple. And so as our as our worship teams comes forward, we're going to worship a little more here, and I'm going to go ahead and have them come forward. I want to close uh, this morning's uh, sermon with what I will call Carl's translation of the model prayer of the disciple. I looked at a few translations, and I found them inadequate, and so I made my own. And so we'll close uh, in this prayer as we worship. So bow with me now. Our loving Father and our omnipotent King, may our our lives as disciples honor and and glorify you. As we follow your command to make disciples, Lord, provide for me and provide for us and protect us physically, protect us relationally, and protect us spiritually. Give us courage as your church advances against Satan's strongholds. Strengthen us so that we can trust you with everything in our lives, even our very lives, Lord, as we seek to serve you. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen.